Chapter One In the great forest, a boy stands entranced, watching the small birds flitting through the treetops and the rabbits and deer browsing among the flowers. Where did these wonderful creatures come from? he wonders. Who was it that made them? The reply comes from an old woodcutter. We see his glory in the silver moon and twinkling stars. We feel his power in the crack of lightning and the torrent that carries the rocks away. We glimpse his beauty in the colours of woodland flowers and the leaves of trees in springtime. We see his wisdom in the ants and bees, all busy about their allotted tasks. Gazing at the cliffs and mountain tops, we know that he is steadfast and unchanging. Hearing the thrush and warbler sing, we sense the sweetness of his word. Examining ourselves, how we see and hear and think and speak, we realise that he sees and hears and thinks and speaks better than we do. For a creator must always be greater than what he has created. We sit quietly in the midst of these amazing things and sense his presence and his peace. And our hearts are filled with gladness and thanksgiving. Yes, indeed. In a whisper or a shout, the natural world speaks to us most vividly of its maker. We see his power and glory, his attention to minute detail, and his infinite love of loveliness. A patch of moss on a wooded bank, or a violet beside the path. We cannot tell why our heart is filled with thankfulness, for we do not know who to thank. From a rocky crag we watch the sun set over the shining ocean, enthralled by the sense of a holy presence. And this seems strange, for we cannot tell who is with us. Stumbling on a rock rose in the sand far from the paths of men, we feel certain its beauty is not wasted on the desert air. For surely some lover of flowers was here before us, although we saw no one. A movement in the forest, and a deer stands with her fawn, dusky silhouettes against the harvest moon. A picture so lovely it moves us then to worship, and remains with us for life. Every such encounter is filled with meaning. Each time it happens, we're enriched with a new measure of spiritual insight. As it is written, ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen and understood in the things that he has made. A sense of wonder, a sense of divine loveliness compels us, whether we wish it or not, to offer thanks to our Creator. But there is far more to discover. How closely have we observed the growing and moving things around us? 
a first glimpse through a microscope opens up a new universe of astonishing complexity and suddenly I'm less sure of what I take for granted. A moment with a telescope and I see the vastness of distant galaxies hurtling silently through space. My complacency is shaken and for the first time my mind is open to the truth. A Jewish rabbi reflects, Life takes place under wide horizons, horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life, or even the life of a nation, a generation or an era. Awe enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. Yes, indeed, to study the eye of an insect, or the wing of a bird, or the whole complex biology of an animal, is to be convinced there is a designer. Every living organ is perfect in form and function, intricately conceived to fulfil its necessary role. These living things were shaped by a creative intelligence, meticulous and skilful beyond human comprehension. And the astonishing variety of kinds and species reveal him to be a great lover of colour, beauty and diversity. A letter has come from a loved one. I know her from her handwriting and her choice of paper and pen. She tells me about the things that interest her and might interest me. Her hopes and joys and what she has been doing. And in her closing words I feel afresh her love for me. Her letter sustains me until I can see her face to face. Creation is a letter written to all mankind. It sustains us until the day when we shall meet the one who wrote it. We will speak of this again. For some of us, creation has long been a paradise where at our leisure we walk with God. Quiet valleys, hills and mountains, a flowing stream, small waves along the seashore. All may serve to soothe our bruised emotions, restoring our balance and perspective. In quiet places we reaffirm the things that matter most and discard all the rest. After busy days amidst the crowds, Jesus gathered his closest friends. Come away by yourselves, he said, to a quiet place and rest a while. Music can also be his gift to us, a simple melody, a sweet harmony, and laying down the weary load we sit a while to listen. It's not the music or the natural world which heals, it's the choice to be still while the mind recovers its composure. 
with a little time there comes a renewed sense of God's presence, then of his acceptance and his call. Hearing the simple notes of David's lyre, the king was refreshed. His mind relaxed and his troubles seemed less pressing. Bring me a harpist, Elisha said, and quietly listening, his vexation was eased. The hand of the Eternal came upon him and he prophesied. An absorbing book or a lovely picture may help to distance me from recent failure or human strife, preparing my mind for better, happier and more heavenly things, allowing me to relax and rediscover my place and value in the world. With a peaceful hour gently weeding or pruning in the garden, or with watercolour painting or creative art, and especially in quiet prayer with a sympathetic friend, we may know the presence of the Lord. These healing moments are his gift to us. They pass all too soon, yet leave a renewed sense of well-being that remains. Be still and know that I am God. These are his words to us whenever we are stressed. At the end of a bad day, I offer it up to him and leave it there. Changing my clothes and my mood with them, I take a shower and wash it all away. A spoiled evening is over as soon as my head touches the pillow and I have nothing more to do with it. As it's written, weeping may last all night, but joy comes with the morning. I realise the problem I face may have no solution. If it has a solution, I may not find it today. Perhaps someone else will find it. Perhaps it will simply cease to be a problem. After prolonged stress, I may need more time for quiet recovery. Perhaps a day to climb a mountain, to follow a stream, or to sit in a sunny garden or a clearing in the forest. Step away from whatever has brought anxiety, sorrow or frustration. And as you go, slip a notebook and a pencil in your pocket. Then walk slowly. Allow your tensions to unwind. Hear the wind and water. Watch the changing colours of sky and hills and trees. And soon the troubles of yesterday are left far behind. You begin to see it all in a different light. The Spirit of God is helping you understand where you fit into the wider scheme of things and the purposes that take longer to unfold. You realise that few things matter very much and most things not at all. Times move on and troubles pass and so do the people who upset us. What seems so bad now could easily change for the best. Wisdom is gained with difficulty. It's a gift and perhaps a revelation, but not a secure possession. Insights like divine sparks may flicker up and vanish, leaving us once more in darkness, even blinder than before.
Yet sparks of light as they fly can be caught on film or paper and kept forever. Pause to write down what you felt and seen and understood, noting the time and place. Later you may look back on those frail pages and affirm the faith that saw its first glimmer on that weary day. If hard times come again, you may recall with thankfulness how your Lord led you out of that dark valley. And in moments of doubt and uncertainty, you may bless the very ink that testified of truth in happier times. In the midst of his creation, I have found my creator and felt his healing touch. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Then knowing the troubles that others face, I may find ways to share my thoughts with trusted friends, or even with strangers if they're interested and might find comfort. It could be the start of a new friendship, or even the beginning of their own quest for the living God. The more deeply we study the science of our universe, the more complex and ingenious we find its chemical elements, its physical structures and forces of energy, and the more astonishing its living animals and plants. Scientists amass the facts, but do not always know exactly what to make of them. Every day our knowledge increases, whilst the implications remain obscure. In fact, the human mind can refuse to accept the obvious. Seeing is believing, they say. But how much do we really see? And how much do we understand what is right before our eyes? There are questions that science has not yet answered, and some that science will never answer. We still do not know, for example, what lies beyond the furthest star, or even in the depths of our great oceans. Researchers can measure and describe a planet or a bird, or a virus, but can only theorise about how it came to be as it is. While processes may be demonstrated by experiment, and laws of behaviour be identified by replication, their cause and starting point remain a mystery. You come upon a bowl of tepid water and cannot tell if it was filled with boiling water some hours ago, or with warm water a few minutes ago. Although you can measure and describe it, you can know nothing of its origin, or its purpose, or indeed its future. To learn those things, you must consider the possibility that someone put it there, and then let them tell you. Science describes what is present, but cannot tell us why. Intention or desire or meaning 
cannot be measured or described in the field or laboratory. And no one knows the future. Researchers cannot be sure how everything that now exists may change or evolve or come to an eventual end. Admitting ignorance is not easy for a specialist in any field. But there are questions that astronomers, biologists, physicists and chemists cannot answer. They remain a mystery. A scientist willing to accept mystery as the domain of an intelligence superior to his own may soon find mystery everywhere and indeed delight to find it. For a scientist, as for any other human being, there may be an intellectual awakening as from a deep sleep. Accepting the possibility that behind everything is someone. The veil is drawn back briefly, and in that moment we glimpse traces of the living God. There is someone who knows how and why it started, and who may know much better than we do what still lies ahead. It is an awesome thing when a man or a woman is moved to kneel on the forest floor and worship. But awe does not intimidate and terrify. It attracts and delights, drawing us nearer, fascinated and enthralled, stirring a new awareness of truth that extends far beyond human knowledge or perception. There is joy and anticipation and perhaps a longing to remain forever where we are. Like the three on the mountaintop who were moved to whisper, Lord, it's so good that we are here. As the message of the eternal God to us, creation has been assembled with great care. Every piece lovingly conceived and put in place with complex genetic instructions and energy sources that make it work. Each cell fulfills its allotted purpose, enabling a plant, insect or animal to live and grow and reproduce. The Bible tells us, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Indeed, it was. But the boy in our story comes to a tumble-down cottage with a ragged hermit hunched beside the door. He tells the poor man about the glory of creation as the woodcutter has just described it. But the hermit is not impressed. It seems to me, he says, the world is like this ruined house. Once it was beautiful but some vandal has crept in and wrecked it. Here is the great enigma of planet Earth. So many things exquisitely beautiful and good, and yet so much of grief and pain that appears willfully or uncontrollably bad. Cruelty 
exploitation and endless violence. What purpose does it serve? Is it all the work of God? Does he consider it very good? Is it what he intended for his creation? Is he happy with it? Or does he feel troubled about it, as we are? Most people are ambivalent about nature. Some insects, animals and plants we like to see. But some we avoid and some we destroy. A butterfly or moth flies into the house. We catch it gently and release it in the garden. But what of a wasp or cockroach, a bedbug or a flea? We enjoy the daffodils and primroses, the apples and the strawberries. But do we feel the same about stinging nettles, deadly nightshades and death-capped toadstools? We admire the song of a blackbird or a nightingale, the agility of a squirrel or a harvest mouse, the fine colours of a pheasant or a jay. But did the Lord God also make the animals that have power to hurt? Did he design the stinging scorpion and poisonous spider? Did he devise the fangs and venom of the viper and black mamba? Did he create the malaria parasite in the blood-sucking mosquito that kills 450,000 people every year? Did he formulate the hepatitis virus, which annually cuts down 900,000? Did he program the genetic mutation and rampant cell growth, which we call cancer? If not, where did they come from? On this earth, every animal is either predator or prey, and sometimes both. The sharks, cheetahs and peregrine falcons of this world are superbly equipped for chasing, catching and eating other animals. If we happen to observe the kill, we usually feel quite uncomfortable. And the more sensitive and intelligent the prey, the more uncomfortable we feel. A frog is always welcome at the garden pond. But what do we think when the frog is chased and tormented by a cat? A blue tit is a pleasure to watch among the leaves, questing for tiny caterpillars and mites. But how do we feel when the blue tit is snatched and plucked by a sparrowhawk? Or further afield, when a small gazelle is chased down and dismembered by dogs or wolves? Or when a lion drags an antelope to the ground and starts tearing out its flesh? The violence seems offensive, shocking and unnatural. If we feel this way, about the natural world, we may wonder if its creator sees it in the same way. If we are made in his image, perhaps he views it as we do. In that case, 
it tells us something very interesting about him. There are things happening in his creation that he does not like at all. And if so, the sophisticated design of the predators, parasites and infectious diseases may not be his work, but the work of another sophisticated intelligence with very different tastes. Every cell in every animal, plant and insect is programmed with written instructions which determine the shape it has and the function it performs. But when these instructions are corrupted by a virus, the cells start to behave abnormally for the benefit of the virus rather than its host. Virus species outnumber the species of anything else on Earth. 6,000 have been described in detail, with millions of variants. Viruses are to blame for COVID-19, Ebola, measles, rubella, AIDS, chickenpox, shingles, rabies, hepatitis, influenza, dengue fever, yellow fever, polio, meningitis and many other life-threatening conditions. A virus is not a living organism, but a particle containing protein and genetic code. When this particle touches a living cell, it attaches to that cell and adds its genetic code to the code already in the cell. The alien code then starts to produce multiple copies of its own genetic material. It bursts the cell and releases identical particles to infect other cells. The computer age has helped us understand how viruses may work. When an alien code finds its way into a computer and corrupts its coded instructions, we are alerted to the presence of a virus because the computer starts to behave in bizarre ways. A virus in a computer is not merely a copying error or mutation that develops by itself in the course of time. It is a code compiled by a skilled programmer working with deliberate purpose. And the virus was not made by the same person who designed the computer and programmed its original software. It was made by a malicious meddler. We may wonder if the same is true of a biological virus. The invasive code did not evolve by itself through copying errors over long or short periods of time. It was deliberately devised by a skilled and malevolent interloper. It will work to infect as many healthy organisms as possible, preventing them from doing what their maker intended. The viral process is extraordinarily sophisticated. It is very clever. In fact, it is devilishly clever. There are other subtle intruders at work in the natural world. Galls are abnormal outgrowths in plants 
and may be caused by fungi, bacteria, mites or microscopic worms. But more often by 1300 species of wasp laying eggs in the buds or elsewhere in the plant. These all succeed in corrupting the hormonal processes or genetic coding of the plant tissue. So it grows rapidly and abnormally, providing nutrients for the parasite inside the gall. This is remarkably ingenious. Other invasive organisms, such as bacteria, insects, mites and worms, penetrate the living tissue of an animal or human being. Some feed directly on the victim's blood, flesh or body fluids. Others trigger abnormal hormone production or massive growth of defensive tissue, modifying the substance of the host for their own benefit. Leprosy and cholera are the consequence of particular bacteria. River blindness is caused by parasitic worms introduced through the bite of a certain fly. Schistosomiasis, that is bilharzia, comes from flatworms released into drinking water by snails. Elephantiasis results from roundworms carried by mosquitoes. Millions of people suffer intense pain and misery through these parasitic infections, and hundreds of thousands die every year. We face other dangers too. Deadly toxins are found in plants such as hemlock and curare, and in some fungi and in animals like poison dart frogs. These are all extracted and used by humans to kill their enemies. Venomous snakes, insects, spiders and jellyfish are endowed with sharp needles to inject lethal poisons into their victims and so immobilize and eat them. The biological structures and processes in each case are superb and frighteningly efficient. These are the facts well known to any biologist. But what sense can we make of them? How did all this come about? Is there any meaning or purpose in it? And where is it leading to? Predators are magnificently equipped for hunting with stealth and speed, possessing claws and jaws ideally shaped to catch and grip and kill. Venomous animals are deftly armed to paralyse their prey. Viruses are cunningly programmed to manipulate genetic code. Bacteria and other parasites exploit living tissues with great efficiency at the cost of their victims' health and life. The evidence of design points to a skilled designer, but one with a macabre taste for violence and pain. Can we believe, as many religious people do, that God is the creator of all things, including the viruses, parasites, poisons and predators that cause such misery throughout the world? Some writers have suggested that in his original creation, God front-loaded genes 
that remained dormant until the time came for him to spoil his own creation. The stings and fangs and poisons were programmed into the original plants and animals to be triggered a little later at the fall. But can we picture God creating the world very good while planning to make it very bad? Can we imagine him intending from the beginning to torment it with highly sophisticated mechanisms of misery and pain? Jesus pointed to the snake and scorpion as creatures which God will never give his children. He said, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? We know that ordinary human parents want to give good things to their children. So how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is good and does good. As it is written, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. A creation described as very good could surely not include instructions for misery and torment just waiting to be triggered. We read that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. When a virus infects a computer, we know that the person who made the computer is not the one who made the virus. A second intelligence has been at work. An intruder has been meddling with it. When we study the natural world, it looks as though something very similar has happened to God's creation. The evidence suggests that an enemy has done this. An enemy who was a murderer from the beginning. And these are the words of Jesus Christ, who knows better than we do what happened at the beginning. If this is so, then certainly a vandal has been at work. And if genetic engineering is possible for human beings, there is no reason to suppose it cannot be done by other forms of created intelligence, such as devils and angels. Death and disease are so familiar to us that we cannot easily imagine a world without these terrible afflictions. But the Bible tells us they were not there in the beginning, and they will not be there at the end. A time is coming, we are told, when there will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain. The world we live in was once perfect, and will be perfect once again. So how and why did it go wrong, and how will it be put right? Right. 